we are going to start out with the poem from which the, the name of the conference comes. It's a poem by a Scottish uh, poet, Archibald MacLeish. Um, it's called Hypocrite Autour. And um, the, we will talk through it some as well. So if you think, huh, that's just because he's Scottish, um, not because it's, a, it's also a strange poem. It's a little bit of a strange poem. Hypocrite Autour. Our epoch takes a voluptuous satisfaction in that perspective of the action which pictures us inhabiting the end of everything with death for only friend. Not that we love death, but truly not the fluttering breath, the obscene shudder of the finished act, what the doe feels when the ultimate fact tears at the bowels with its jaws. Our taste is for the opulent pause before the end comes. If the end is certain, all of us are players at the final curtain. All of us, silence for a time deferred, find time before us for one sad last word. Victim, rebel, convert, stoic, every role but the heroic. We turn our tragic faces to the stalls to wince our moment till the curtain falls. A world ends when its metaphor has died. An age becomes an age all else beside when the sensuous poets in their pride invent emblems for the soul's consent that speak the meanings men will never know, but man-imagined images can show. It perishes when those images, though seen, no longer mean. A world was ended when the womb where girl held God became the tomb, where God lies buried in a man. Botticelli's image neither speaks nor can to our kind. His star-guided stranger teaches no longer by the child the manger, the meaning of the becoming skies. Sophocles, when his reverent actors rise to play the king with bleeding eyes, no longer shows us on the stage advance God's purpose in the terrible fatality of chance. No woman living when the girl and swan embrace in verses feels upon her breast the awful thunder of that breast where God, made beast, is by the blood confessed. Empty as conch shell by the waters cast, the metaphor still sounds, but cannot tell, and we, like parasite crabs, put on the shell and drag it to the sea's edge, up and down. This is the destiny we say we own, but are we sure the age that dies upon its metaphor among these Roman heads, these medieval towers, is ours? Or ours, the ending of that story, the meaning in a man that quarry images from blinded eyes and white birds and the turning skies to make a world of we're not spent with these abandoned presences. The journey of our history has not ceased. Earth turns us still toward the rising east. The metaphor still struggles in the stone. The allegory of the flesh and bone still stares into the summer grass. That is its glass. The ignorant blood still knocks at silence to be understood. Poets, deserted by the world before, turn round into the actual air. Invent the age. Invent the metaphor. Mm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you asking that you bless this time together. May your people be blessed. May this be effective and efficient to the hearts of your people, that they be encouraged to live godly lives before you and holy lives. Bless this time together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Um, so uh, I just want to let everybody know we're having an interactive conversation. Does everybody know what that means? 
That means that ask questions, engage. We want to talk. We want to help. If there's something that you're dealing with or trying to develop this cosmology, ask the question that we can help you get onto the horse and start riding this joker, okay? Um, so uh, we want to do more of these everywhere else, but right now it's just for you guys. So feel free to just jump in here and engage. And you're going to be talking a lot, so don't you think you're going to sit over there being quiet. Um, um, who's watched, who listened to Knox Unplugged? Okay, so, wow, there's a lot less than I thought. So this is, so some of you guys, this is the first time engaging with Knox Unplugged then? Who drug you here? <laughs> well, thank you for coming. <laughs> He's like, that guy over there, he drug me here. Um, so, Jason, let, what is a, a metaphor, and why does the world end when it dies? Well, okay, so if you haven't heard Knox Unplugged before, then you might be in for a pleasant surprise um, or a pleasant set of confusing um, moments uh, here and there. Um, we have been having a, a conversation for a year and a half now. Yeah. Um, well, uh, at least publicly a year and publicly, a half. Yeah. We started recording our conversations that we've been having for five or six years, about a year and a half, um, about how the world got into the place that it is now. What went so wrong that now we're in a spot where um, the Transformers cartoon yesterday had an alien robot show up and introduce themselves with their pronouns, they, them, on the Disney Channel. Right? So we think, how, how did we get to the point where an alien um, robot cartoon cartoon <laughs> has to give its pronouns so that people will be able to communicate with it and then gives plural pronouns for a singular person and everybody takes it seriously, um, right? How, how, how did we get to that point, right? So um, we've been talking through um, the, it, and, and what we're going to be talking about today is the cos what, we, what we've termed the cosmological revolution, um, which is the shift in the understanding of what kind of place this world is, this universe is, and where it, uh, what kind of creature we are in, and whether or not we have a place or not in this cosmos. Um, and um, Archibald McLeish is a poet who lived right at the turning point of that uh, cosmological revolution, um, which there was a lot of philosophical aspects of it that happened in the Enlightenment, but culturally speaking, around World War I, you have a major change and shift in everything. And Archibald MacLeish um, lived through that and right at the end of that. And he looked around and said, um, he, he, he looked around and he said, what happened? What, what's the difference between these older poets that I read and now what's going on right now in front of me? And he said, it's a, it's a difference in metaphor systems. There's a completely different metaphor system that we live in that they wouldn't have recognized. And so his, this, this poem is about how an epoch of history um, is a metaphor system or has a metaphor system that people use to be able to communicate and make sense of it. And he, because he's a modernist, and this is a big part of the the. Uh, the cosmological revolution, he believes that the metaphor system is actually what gives shape 
to the world. The world is simply a, a chaotic, is, is just a chaotic uh, uh, p- matter that happens to be in this particular shape. And the, um, but if we want to make sense of it, we have to add something to it. Uh, and so an, an auteur, so it's called the hypocrite auteur. An auteur is a, a French word from cinema um, that the, uh, that means the director made such a big difference in how he directed the script mm. that he's as much the film writer as the writer, mm. right? So that he put his mark on the movie so much that even though he was the director and not the writer, he should also be considered the writer. He should get a writer credit because of the way he told the story and the way he, he took hold of it. And, and the point of this poem is that all of that, that humanity, uh, that a culture, that a society, um, by the way that they talk about the world is actually what gives a sense of shape, a sense of sensibility to the world, um, a sense that the, that the world makes sense, is that we provide that, that the world doesn't give us that. Because the world doesn't have a nature. The world doesn't have its own existence that we can look at and say, okay, this, I've discovered the reality of what this world is and what it's for and how to use it. Instead, we give that to the world by creating or by developing a society of, um, a society-wide metaphor system, right? So, um, and, and he, but he says, unfortunately, the, that the modern one is, is not a very good one because it hasn't, doesn't produce heroes anymore, right? So we live in this world without heroes um, because uh, the, the metaphor system that we've developed uh, it makes it impossible for hero, hero, heroism to be considered a good thing, right? Because it's all based on, um, the, it's based on an evolutionary system um, that, that the might, um, whoever's the strongest ends up in charge, Right? And, that, and that, that's just the way of the world. Right? It goes all the way back to an Italian Renaissance philosopher named Machiavelli, who said the world doesn't have, it doesn't have a nature. The world doesn't have its own existence. Um, the world is just stuff. And whoever is, provides the power gives it its shape. And whoever gives it its shape gives it its nature. Mm. Right? And so um, he argued that if enough people if all of the people combine their power together into one politician, that that politician can create reality, right? So you've got to get rid of everyone who doesn't go along um, because they're in the way of our ability to control reality. Mm. Right? So, um, and the modern world said, let's give that a try, right? Um, let's, let's see, what does it take to pile all of the uh, political power into one spot? What does it take to gather up an, enough power to control reality? And um, what McLeish says is, well, first off, that means you have to get, you have to get rid of all heroism, or you end up get rid, getting rid of all heroism. Because he says, our epoch takes a voluptuous satisfaction by picturing us inhabiting the end of everything with death, right? He says, we, 
we look around and we are satisfied in ourselves because we're the people that say, it all just ends in death, so it's not really very meaningful, right? Now, that's very historically arrogant to think nobody else has ever had that thought. Um, <laughs> it doesn't take long reading very many philosophers to realize that there are a lot of philosophers that were like, death is kind of a problem. Uh, how are we going to deal with this? But, but, the, uh, but he, he says that um, the, our taste is for the opulent pause before the end comes. Now, and, and he, because if, it, if there isn't a reality that the world has, and that it's a particular kind of place that's created by God that's supposed to be used a particular way, then it all comes down to taste, right? It all comes down to um, what is it that we feel like would be the good thing here in this moment or that moment. And he says, what our taste is for you know, voluptuous satisfaction, opulence, right? Um, and particularly, what is it that we love? That opulent pause before death. We all hope that we have some, th th this opportunity to um, <laughs> have this, the, we know that we're going to die, but we hope that before our final curtain comes that we get a good death scene, right? That, and that, because that's the most that we can hope for, for meaning in the modern world. Um, so, but then he says, uh, a world ends when its metaphor has died, right? That an epoch, a world, ends when nobody can make sense of the metaphors that that generation used to use. When nobody can make sense of those generations, he says it's a new epoch. And so he's looking at his epoch and saying, we can't make sense of the world that Christianity ruled anymore, Right, um, we can't, and then he says we can't make sense of the. He, so he talks about a world was ended when the womb where girl held God became the tomb where God lies buried in a man. Botticelli's image neither speaks nor can to our kind. Right, we can't. We don't look at the old art, and we're not moved and, and to be moved by it anymore because it doesn't work that way. Right, you, um, I wrote, saw a really. Um, one of those amazing pictures where it's a group of high school students going through the Sistine Chapel and they're all on their phone trying to take, <laughs> trying to take selfies with the Sistine Chapel in the background. And they're missing, like, it doesn't, it, you don't look, we, we, it's an entire generation that doesn't know how to look up anymore, right? And it, it, has, it has worked its way up to a, a lot of adults quote-unquote adults, because none of us really become adults anymore, right? I mean, we've got a, gener a whole culture that doesn't value growing up, that doesn't value maturity and aging. But it's a culture that doesn't know how to look up, that doesn't, that has, doesn't stop and look at the stars, right? Um, instead of stopping and pondering the moon, we're more likely to try and get a good picture of it, mm. right? We can't, we... we when, you, when you say ponder, what do you... What do you and we don't ponder the moon. We just see we, the moon and we see it. We see it better than we've ever seen it before. <laughs> we, um, but we don't know what it means. We don't even think it has a wait, meaning. Wait, wait, the moon's supposed to have a meaning? Oh, the moon, has, the moon is speaking to us all the time. It doesn't just have a meaning. It has, it, it, it's, a, it's part of the voice of God, right? It's, it's, God is speaking to us. And part of that, the echo of that voice is the moon, right? So 
But do we a don't... concordance study on the moon, <laughs> and all of a sudden you start to realize there's a whole biblical theology built around the moon, right? the sky, the stars, uh, and the way they interact, and what they do, and how they regulate time, and uh, why that makes a difference in history. It's cosmology. Yeah, and, there's no, and it's not a mistake that Jesus cures people from lunacy, which is being struck by the moon. So he, there's a, we live in a world that is a different sort of place than we think it is. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't make it not that place. Because the moderns were wrong. It's not, uh, we don't give the meaning to the world with our metaphor system. Right? The world actually has a meaning. Um, and, it, and it's sitting there speaking and you know, communicating to us, and our deafness doesn't make it go away. Mm. This is why there's like no, like the definition of truth, right? It's, it's changing all the time. Right. It's because of our metaphor. It's, we yeah, think we give we, truth. Ex- exactly. Now, there is truth that we can discover. Pilots, great question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is truth? Mm-hmm. Right. And it's looking them right in the face. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What was that? Hence the phrase, my truth. Right, my truth. Yeah, we, we, we talk of this way. Um, and... And I see Christians not even knowing quite how to do with like identification language um, because we don't want to be rude, but we also see somebody that is trying to is insisting everybody play pretend with them, right? Um, like when you're a little kid, and you know when your kid comes in, um, I remember my daughters would come in uh, at with food they had cooked from their restaurant, right, when they're three, four years old, and say, oh, yum, 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 thanks so much, right? But you expect them to grow out of that. Right. And, but right. we don't anymore, right? So something is seriously wrong, right, when, when, um, when you've got full-blown adults throwing a fit because you won't play pretend with them. Mm-hmm. Would it be correct to say that your analogy of metaphor, I don't know if that's the right word, but... Wouldn't, isn't God speaking metaphor to us anyway through creation in a way? That's why we're grasping for metaphor as human beings. Right, yeah. The, the, because we're always grasping for meaning. Right. It's not, the, it's not that looking for metaphor is the wrong problem. Right? It's, it's where we're looking for yeah. the metaphor. Because um, the, the sky is poor for speech. You know, we're seeing. Right. And yeah. making up what the metaphors are and giving them new meaning. It's like the French Revolution. We're going to rename everything. Mm-hmm. Days, hours, buildings. We're going to tear down statues. We're going to make sure that we now define all the terms. Uh, it's, uh, it's Russia in Donbass uh, refusing to allow Ukrainian language and Ukrainian songs to be sung. It's why uh, after the Battle of Culloden, England banned the tartans and the bagpipes. You strip away mm. the metaphors and you mm. supply new ones that will now define reality. It's, and it's, it's why instead of Google putting up an Easter celebration, they're putting up, um, wait, which month is this? No. Yeah. They, Pride month. Pride month. Yeah. Is it Pride month? I don't know. I can't, I can't keep them straight. June, June, I think, is uh, shame it's, month. June, shame, shame month. month. Yeah. yeah. But the, but what... I hope to go to jail for Jesus at some point. That's a that's a that would be a worthy cause. 
the, um, but the, it's the same attempt to, ch to change the calendar, right? Because the calendar is an important people-defining, um, people-defining, it, it gives us a, a major portion of our identity. And so we came out of COVID with suddenly, without anybody asking, without anybody telling you what to do or asking if, what we, if it's what we wanted, each month was assigned to a different group of marginalized, quote unquote, people, right? So that now the calendar can be a reinforcement of this new understanding of critical theory, really. All, all calendars are worldview constructs. Yes. There are hundreds of calendar systems still in operation in the world. We celebrate, uh, oftentimes, Chinese New Year. Um, we, we know when Ramadan is. And uh, all of those are constructs to make sense of the flow of history or how history uh, is supposed to work. So if you want to change culture, you have to change the calendar. Which, by the way, is why for Pride Month, every single one of you should post on Facebook, Instagram, and any other social media thing you have, Bible verses on pride. Because <laughs> it'll turn now. the whole thing Come upside on down. Come on. I just want to, I want to, I know everybody is about That's a brilliant. thousand steps ahead of me on this. And so I'm going to just say the dumb thing. Uh, but when you talk about calendar, it, it took me a long time to realize that we're not talking about a piece of paper with days on it. We're actually talking about the cosmos. Right. We're talking about planets moving in rotation that are marking off time. So when people are adjusting the calendar, they're trying to readjust the cosmology of a people. That took me a long time to understand because we think about calendar. Well, I go to Google Calendar. What's the day and what happens on the day? No, we're actually saying something bigger than that. We're talking about how the whole world is oriented at this particular time. Every one of the great battles that we have today about marriage, about sexuality, about transgenderism, about race, all of those are cosmological battles. Every single one of them. Which is why they have to have a date on a calendar. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah, fight, fighting for a date. And here, right. um, in the in the McLeish's um, poem, he he understands that um, right towards the end. He he says the journey of our history has not ceased. And then he says, Earth turns us still toward the rising east. He is referencing what would have been called the new astronomy at one point, right? The idea that the Earth is turning and the world is rotating around the sun and then the, our solar system is rotating around some other center point. And then that is rotating around some other center point. Right? That um, right? Every single one of us, if we close our eyes and picture the Earth, pictures it from the perspective of the space, the International Space Station, which would not have been the place that they pictured the earth a hundred years ago. Um, if you said picture the earth, most of us would think about looking down at our feet, right? They, they picture the earth, you know, maybe, uh, maybe a map of some sort that was put together. Um, but the, the idea that um, the, the, the idea of our cosmos is completely integrated even though we don't believe the, the cosmos is integrated, because we are created in the image of an integrated God, our cosmos imagination is integrated all the way from how we picture and understand the movements of the stars. The fact that when we talk about the stars, very few of us, uh, if, if, 
if you say, oh, you know, picture the universe, very few of us still picture it from our own perspective. Right? We don't think, oh, picture the universe from, we don't think from where, we have a place that we picture the universe from. That is, um, that dislodges our imagination from our own person. Right? We have an imagination that floats out into space and then pictures everything. Um, rather than, and, and rather than the older way of thinking about the universe where you think, okay, I want to picture the universe, you go outside, and you look up, and from your perspective, you think this is the perspective from which I look at the universe, right? We, the, the, modern, um, the modern conception of the cosmos is, has shifted so far away, and this is the point of McLeish's poem, which I think is right, it's shifted so far away that when we hear people talking about the universe in the Middle Ages, we can't even make sense of it. We just scoff at how silly they are to think that the Earth was the center of the universe, right? But whose perspective do we expect them to see it from besides their own, right? They should, I mean, we all experience the world as if we're the center of the universe. Some of us even more than others. More than others, right? Right? Yeah. This is not an intervention. <laughs> but but uh, we, we, we scoff at them because our imagination has been decentered from our own experience um, and then somehow think that ours is the right one versus theirs being the right one. Uh, did you get through all of the, that you wanted to get through on the poem? You never get through all I know, of I know you don't, but I'm particularly interested <laughs> in the last part. Is that his, his charge? Yes, poets deserted by the world before turn round into the actual air. Invent the age. Invent the metaphor, right? He says we're in, a, we're in a transitional spot. And so he calls on all the poets to come together and invent whatever the new system is. And this is, um, this is a Nietzschean understanding that you need a great, you, a great man to come along and an ubermensch to come along and give the world its new Form when you when the world goes through a great revolution, um, and that the that the Ubermensch goes through his own personal struggles to become the one who can then define the world, which is why Hitler called his book Mein Kampf, my, my struggle, because he was trying to become the Ubermensch that gave the shape to the new world that was going to be birthed out of. The but war. virtually all moderns want to be the Ubermensch. Right. Yeah. I mean, w whether it's Biden or Trump. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, on, <laughs> on polar extremes of, of the political realm, it's Ubermensch, it's Superman all over yeah. again. Or even Ron DeSantis. Oh. Right. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? So, so then how, how did, I want to come back to that because I think there's a, I want, when we get to talking, I want to talk a little bit about the struggle of, of, that we have right now was we're fighting, probably when Fowler comes in here we'll talk about law because law right now is where everybody's running to either side and they're doing that, right? They're not thinking about the cosmological reality starting there. They're running to they're Machiavellian. They're running to the law to impose it. Um, As but, if the law is somehow a, a, a metaphor that can reshape the ex world. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But how did modernity change the type of place this is and the type of people that we are? Well, part of it is, I mean, we can go back to Darwin, Marx, Freud, Nietzsche, uh, Gramsci, and we can look at what they were working with. Uh, and their language, their, their definitions are the, 
the, it's the language and the definitions that we now have. Uh, but, you know, you have to really go back way, way before them because they were just um, amalgamators. They were, they were grabbing out of the grab bag of rebellion anything and everything that they could find. So there are bits and pieces of the French Revolution. Uh, there are bits and pieces of, of the um, Luddite Revolution, of the, of the Granger Revolution, the, the Peasants' Revolution in Luther's time, that they're pulling pieces uh, from, uh, and they're plundering as much as they can from the Renaissance as well. Uh, so you've got all of these ideas, but the bottom line is, is that uh, every single redefinition, every attempt at a new metaphor, whether it's an economic, a political, or a cultural metaphor, all of them were rooted in a rebellion against the way God originally designed and defined the world. So every single one of the battles that we're facing are cosmological battles, which is why the Band-Aid approach of simply uh, proposing a bit of uh, uh, legislation or even building a wall is not sufficient because we're dealing with a cosmological <laughs> shift. The metaphors have changed. And so what we've got to do is we've got to realize, first and foremost, and this is something that most Christians don't realize, is that that there is an original purpose and design, Genesis 1 and 2, and that therefore when we proclaim the gospel to the world, we can't start with Genesis 3, the fall of man, uh, and Jesus as the solution. Jesus is the restorer of Genesis 1 and 2, so Christian activity in the world is really oriented around refurbishing Genesis 1 and 2. Mm. Refurnishing, resupplying, reaffirming Genesis 1 and 2. What we do is we always start with Genesis 3, fall of man. Jesus comes, he redeems us, he saves us from our sin. We're dealing with the fall only. But the, the, the remarkable thing that Paul tells us over and over again is the gospel begins with creation. Think about Colossians chapter 1. Think about all creation groaning for the day of redemption. Think about Paul's metaphor for what salvation looks like. We are a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. He's talking about restoring, refurbishing the earth, making all things as they were intended to be designed, making them new again. Can I, can I ask a question about that? Yeah. So I'm, I'm with you that we start at three and we need to think about one and two, but should we go even further, right, in rewind and look at the Trinity and what we know about the Trinity, communing, engaging, creating, deferring, um, and say, what are the implications of what we know about the Trinity before chapter one for how we do... Yeah, it, the divine decrees which give rise to all of those creation ordinances in Genesis one and two are shaped and defined by the triune God. And we start to see that unfold in all of those creation ordinances, those mandates that we see in Genesis 1 and 2. In one sense, we can't go prior to Genesis 1 and 2 because all that we know about the preexistent eternal God and his eternal decrees 
um, come from beginning Genesis 1 and 2. So uh, in the same way that Calvin says uh, at the beginning of the Institutes, uh, this is where we've got to start. We start here, but, but fortunately, by starting here, we can see back uh, to that uh, time of the eternal decrees of God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that, um, and I'm not calling you a heretic, just before I... <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> no. That was, yeah. But go ahead. Arius... Arius this made, is going to be interesting. Arius. Wherever this goes, I'm interested. <laughs> Arius made an argument that it's important that we start with um, God, God, the divine uncreated one, and that everything, and that once we get knowledge of that, then everything else we we bring um, into our knowledge of everything that's come after. And Athanasius, in his rebuttal of Arius, says there is no knowledge of God simply as the divine uncreated one. We only have knowledge of Jesus Christ, who reveals to us the Father. Who, um, we only have knowledge of the creation, which is an allegory of who God is. Right? Our knowledge is all mediated, and it's mediated by created things. Arius wanted to say, therefore, it's, that's all secondary knowledge because it's mediated. We need direct knowledge of God, the uncreated one. Well, um, and Athanasius said, no, you're, you, if, you won't, if that's the only thing you'll call real knowledge, then you're insisting that you, are, you have to be God to be able to have real knowledge. And it's the same definition of knowledge that Plato gives in, the, um, in his understanding of what true knowledge is, is that it has to be direct knowledge of the nature of a thing that's unmediated. Um, so he will only call knowledge what God has as knowledge. But then he says except for the philosopher can get it too, right? <laughs> but so, that, was, that was Aristotle's great rebellion against Plato, right, which right. is why uh, Aristotle is all about the particulars. Uh, and uh, in a sense, what Arius was doing was he was fighting cosmological battle. He was attempting to create new metaphors mm. to describe the whole world. So mm. in, yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's that vicious circle. Right down here first. I'm, I'll get you, sir, just a second. He was... Sure. Yeah, so... so. Uh, wasn't Francis Schaeffer trying to address this? I mean, he, in the 60s and 70s, he saw what we're seeing today. He saw this coming. The upper story and, and the lower yeah, story leads. Basically, yeah. in the, you know, how should we then live? Right. Saw this, and basically, with the little things like you're talking about, whether it's building the wall or, or this, that, and the other, he said, look, we've, that what we've got to get, we've got to realize this is a biblical, this is a worldview battle. And, of course, with that perspective, my understanding from what he was saying, is that we would go back to Genesis, we would look at how the cosmology speaks to us and the moon can speak to us because it's God's creation. And I, from, is that correct? He was arguing for that back then and saying if this is, the, this is the route forward, this is the thing we have missed through all of this, is we've got to get back to understanding what is truth and how do we articulate that Verbally, writing it, speaking it, and most importantly, living it. Now, Schaefer actually argued in, uh, just before his death that his most important book was his book on Genesis. I was going to say that. You were going to say I was that. Say well, you that. learned so much from him. I know. I learned from you, You should have expected he was going to do that to you. <laughs> I, I do think that Schaefer got hijacked, though. 
I think that Schaefer got hijacked. A, a group of people in the political movement saw that, oh, this gives us a foundation to have somewhat of a Christian worldview, and they took that and politicized it, yeah. and then forgot the thing that made the, their, their worldview. No and so, question. And so they end up getting a different cosmology with the worldview. So now... And, and part of that, quite frankly, was Jerry Falwell. That's, what, that's exactly what I'm thinking because about. Because Jerry, <laughs> yes. Jerry saw the power yes. in what Schaefer was saying. But Jerry did not have an understanding of covenant. He didn't understand the Trinity. And uh, he had this very narrow kind of soteriological faith only. And uh, as a result, he didn't get the cosmology, didn't understand the heart of what Schaefer was saying. So he created the moral majority to, to politicize, in a sense, certain bits and pieces of Schaefer's worldview and then all of a sudden we have the Jack and Joanne Kemp and it makes its way into the Reagan White House and all of the rest. Jesus seems to frame the argument here in John chapter 3 verse 16, for God so loved the world. Nothing before the created world, but the world. Let's go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Right. And start there. Absolutely. And Colossians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 8. I mean, you just go... Anywhere where the clarity of the gospel is laid out, and you'll quickly see you have to begin with the fact that it is Christ who holds the whole world together. Um, and I think we often get that in, as a theological category, but we have a really hard time figuring out what does it mean just about to, go to embrace the, the embrace. Even the first, the, the metaphors of the first couple of chapters, you know, Paul in his prayer at the beginning of Colossians, he says, I know you've heard the gospel and I've heard that it's made you fruitful and multiply in the knowledge of the Lord, right? And you realize, oh, the, it's, a, he's, it's a restorative thing, right? Right there in the middle of his prayer. Be fruitful. But, yeah, he, he's not, he, he's not, but it's not, uh, uh, it, it's, it's the entire, the, the book of Genesis, the first couple of chapters of Genesis, um, really the first you know, uh, um, leading up to Abraham, that whole section, he pulls from that for me- just the metaphors of how he interacts with people. The entire f- book of 1 Timothy is, is constructed around the metaphor of the Garden of Eden, of the church being the restored Garden of God, of, of the pastor's being Adam, but not falling like him, of the church being Eve, but being actually protected rather than experimented on by her husband, right? The, you've got the, the entire book of Timothy is, a lo- the, the argument is a long extended metaphor about the Garden of Eden. And, and Second Timothy picks up at Babel and goes forth. Oh my gosh, you're right. Oh, that's scary. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't yeah. thought about Second that. Timothy picks up at Babel and goes all the way from Babel to Abraham. You're going to change the whole conversation. Oh, man. <laughs> Hold on. Okay. All right. You're going to come on Knox Unplug and work that one through. <laughs> yeah. have to... so I, but I'll... but it, and it, that, that turns the, the, whole, the church's entire outward mission into a de-Babelization. Exactly. Which... Babel was an attempt to rewrite the metaphor, to right. redefine the cosmology, to build the stairway to heaven. And uh, so with the scattering, 
Uh, we now have the scattering of the nations and the de of the world for the new creation. Ah! How, how could you not be post-millennial at this point? Like, that's the whole work of the church. Yeah, so... <laughs> this is. Is it time for a bathroom? This is, <laughs> I mean, this, this is this is why. Um, this is why we need to know our Bibles. We need to know our Bibles too. But I, but the the church when we get away from this as the central church, church's central mission, that's that's how we end up. I'm gonna just go. I'm going. Go there. for it. So. That's why Christian nationalism becomes a temptation. Mm-hmm. Because we have shifted away from the, what is it that the gospel does? It actually, it plows through those walls. Right. The church becomes the, uh, the international institution that, doesn't, that, that is uncooptable right. for mm. those smaller... I mean, I mean the goal of... Christians should be to regarden their land, restore it to the first and second Genesis, and that and a big part of that is the civil government coming back in line with its original mission that God gave it. But the church has a different mission than the nation. Oh man, I'm gonna... there's such a thing as a Christian individual, right? Is there such a thing as a Christian family? Absolutely. Is there such a thing as a Christian town? Yes. State? State. Keep government. Going. Government. <laughs> nation. Nationalism. Right. But, but nationalism is a different thing than a Christian nation. Let right? me say Christian nation, mere Christian nation. Yes. <laughs> well, okay, well, we, now, now we, that you modify well, it. We want Christian nations. We've got, to, we've got to eliminate the language of ideology. Yeah, so all of those isms... Uh, that are out there. We have to be really cautious because no matter what theism is, whether it's conservatism or liberalism, they are systems, mechanical systems. Uh, and the assumption is, is that you plug all of the right pieces into all of the right places uh, in the system and the system will work. Uh, the world doesn't work as a system. Uh, the world is covenantal and there are these relationships so when we think about um, those pieces, we should think covenantally, meaning we should think in terms of jurisdictions and overlapping responsibilities and accountabilities. Uh, this is where Abraham Kuyper is really helpful with his uh, versailing, um, his, his pillarization. Uh, we have all of these that, different jurisdictions. Was that a Dutch word? Mm-hmm. What was it? Versailing. Oh. <clears throat> you want to write that down? Yeah. Okay. Pillar, it literally means pillarization. So you have all of these so, pillars that are the... That, so that, Versailles means pillar? Uh, Versailles. Uh, or Versailles, if you're on the southern side okay. of, of uh, Holland. But it's spelled with a V, v. Like, like Versailles. Mm-hmm. Versailles. Learn something new. Huh? So what happened in talking about the... Uh, something happened worldwide or to the West right around the Enlightenment, modernism, so that all of these poets and authors, Chesterton, Kuyper, 
Tolkien, Lewis, Schaefer are looking, going, something happened with this modernism suddenly in Christianity. But it wasn't sudden. Again, it wasn't sudden. It was a recovery from the grab bag of, of lies, the of satanic tricks through the ages that kind of came together briefly at the French Revolution and then exploded out through the secret societies and eventually paved the way for World War I, World War II. It gave the vocabulary and the structure for Darwin, uh, Galton, uh, you know, uh, Marx, uh, Freud, um, uh, all of the rest. And what happened was that they pounded the world through all of the, the elite spheres, uh, the strategy of the robes, uh, huh. through the courts, through academia, through science, and all the rest, strategy the uh, and gave us this new vocabulary. It feels like it's all happened really fast, but it, it was a long, long, slow march while the church was retreating into Genesis three uh, rather than Genesis one and two declarations. So you look at every single one of the rebellions, the first thing that they do is they attack the very first of the creation ordinances, which is simply that there is a sovereign God and he is not a part of the creation, the creator-creature distinction. That's the beginning place. And then it proceeds from there attacking every one of the other creation ordinances. Male and female, he created them. He made them to be fruitful and multiply. He gave them responsibility over the garden to guard it and to keep it, to exercise dominion. <clears throat> I mean, well, you look once at once all you lose that first one, you've already lost the rest. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, it becomes a domino effect. Huh? And you well, start sleep, to see, sleepy. you know, you look at Rousseau, and he's not going to deny that there is a God, um, uh, but he's already eroded the foundations of it because it's no longer the one true God, and that tips over, and all of a sudden you start. Uh, you start losing it all. So uh, how, did you want to keep going? Because I'm in that same vein with you. How is it that a people who are so Christianized got snuck up on like that and got taken out? Because wouldn't that would be the first thing? If you're reading your Bibles, if you're steeped in the scriptures, you're like, wait a second. They're coming after Genesis 1 and 2. And because you don't... what happens is we, we start to fear that the gospel has become way too political or way too cultural. Um, we want to stick to what the gospel is, which is preaching Jesus as a savior of sinners only. And what, what happens is, is if, if we redefine the gospel as that, rather than the gospel changes everything, rather than what Jesus says in the Great Commission, go to the nations and teach them everything that I have commanded you. Now what we've done is we've narrowed it so it becomes this sweet spot in our heart. So I'm walking in the garden alone with Jesus. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. All things, yes. all things, all things, for him, under him, all things. So not just salvation, but the earth, your political system, your government, your family. Yeah. And we didn't give him all things. We said he's just here for this tiny repentance in your personal yeah. Every great true revival is claiming the crown rights of King Jesus. Uh, all partial revivals 
stir in our hearts so that it's all about us. My heart, my feelings, my affections, my family, my whatever. One of the things that's really uh, interesting, um, I, well, first, the strategy of the robes, is that, was, there, was that a real conspiracy that people stole robes? That's, I can't, ex- I'm, that's, that's, yeah, the strategy that's like a footnote that I can't wait to run down. That yeah, the strategy of the roads is Antonio Gramsci. Uh, Gramsci was an Italian Marxist who, after World War I, realized that the communist revolution, which was always aimed at a radical cosmological shift yeah. of the world, it was never intended to be an economic system. Uh, Marx drove it as an economic system with his three-volume Das Kapital because he thought that by exploiting the chasm between rich and poor that he could usher in the revolution. Gramsci said, no, 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 we're never going to win that battle uh, because it'll always be barricades in the streets, it'll always be a reprise of the French Revolution, we'll always wind up with Robespierre and guillotines. What we really need is to change the culture. So how do we change the culture? So he begins to write his prison diaries, uh, which have only been recently translated into English by Joseph Budedjedj, uh, the father of Pete Budedjedj, uh, at uh, the University of Notre Dame, (laughs) a Catholic university. He translates, but he's the, he, you know, Gramsci is sort of the, the founding father of everything from the Frankfurt School, uh, which gives us the radical 60s movement and Marcuse and um, gives us the radical secularization of the public school movement. It gives us Bauhaus architecture. It gives us brutalist um, uh, uh, graphic art. It gives us all of those, those movements. Uh, he was also the, the godfather of people like Saul Alinsky, uh, you know, Rules for Radicals and Reveille for Radicals, uh, which gives us everything from uh, people uh, like uh, Georgetown professor and mentor of Bill Clinton, uh, who, who wrote uh, Tragedy and Hope, uh, to... Um, the community organizer movement launched by Saul Alinsky that gives, gives us people like Barack Obama. So all of that is tied into one sort of neat little plan called the strategy of the robes. Capture the judiciary, capture the liberal clergy, capture academia, capture science, and you've captured the culture and you win the war yep. for cosmology there. Oh. The question, um, the, um, I guess what you call the uh, uh, metamorphosis, uh, could you talk, Dr. Grant, about uh, Augustine's City of God and how that would be um, what we call it, uh, a model for about a thousand years? And, and, and what do you think about the City of God? <laughs> well, the City of God is the manifesto of Western civilization. It uh, laid the framework for uh, how we got to what uh, David Fowler writes about uh, common law. I mean, uh, Blackstone didn't come up with all of that stuff himself. He was drawing from this rich tradition. Oh, stop. I didn't know that. 
that, that Blackstone didn't come up with it? We've talked about this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I didn't know City of God was informing oh, Okay. That. So the City of God tells the story of the history of man through two cities. So there are two parts. They circle back and forth. But uh, the, the idea is that God has a plan and a purpose for humankind for the restoration of every broken thing, uh, restoring Genesis 1 and 2 over time with the power of the gospel. Uh, meanwhile, the city of man is in constant rebellion against every single one of the 20 creation ordinances. And so what, uh, what Augustine lays out is the blueprint for Western civilization. What's, what's really interesting, too, is the city of God was the most popular work of Augustine through the Middle Ages. Um, but starting with the Renaissance, you begin having a re-centering of the Christian experience away from society to, to the individual, to the, the confessions. And now so, confessions is the yeah, one that every, everyone thinks. That's, that's the most important. Yeah. Um, and it's not bad, but it's not the most important of his works. But there was a poet named Petrarch who had a miniature of the confessions made that he held over his heart. I really love Petrarch, but he was an emotional mess. Um, he inventor of the sonnet, and, and he used to carry a small copy, of, a miniature of the confessions over his heart, and he would hike to the top of mountains, cry in a thunderstorm, and pull out his miniature of the confessions and read, and, and then he would put it back in. Um, and he began a, a poetic tradition of individualism um, that moved away from the epic traditions where you had poet, poetry as a primarily a storytelling. Um, a, a, and this, like, Petrarch is a fantastic poet, worth the read. He's really, really gifted. Um, his, but he was very self-centered. Which is why we see the shift, the radical yeah. shift between, say, Chaucer and Shakespeare. Right. Chaucer was anti-Petrarchian. Right. And Shakespeare stole from Petrarch you know, shamelessly. Right. And we don't, and, and I, I don't, I mean, I don't think we actually have to choose between the two. Um, when you have a balance between the individual experience of Christ and then the corporate life, um, a, a, a corporate life by faith, you know, together that spills out and converts societies. Because um, Augustine wrote both. Right, because Augustine wrote both, right? We don't have to choose <laughs> between them. With himself, yeah. um, but you can see a shift it's similar to the shift in early America from instead of at, at their confirmations for years, uh, kids got a copy, of, uh, a, the copy of the Bible and a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs. That shifted to Pilgrim's Progress um, when Pilgrim's Progress blew up and it became the best-selling book of all time outside of the Bible until Harry Potter. Right? That's how popular it was. You, you have the, a shift from an understanding of us as a corporate people. Here's Fox's Book of Martyrs. Here are our heroes. Mm. Um, two, mm. let me talk about your internal spiritual life with mm. you and the, the struggles, right? The metaphor system shifts from I am a part of this great people to my internal life with Christ is always... Oops, I hit the microphone. My internal life with Christ is always on the verge of falling apart, mm. right? Um, there was a group um, that that uh, met, and some of them, the, these folks came over and were a part of the American Revolution, but they met in London in the um, 19th, 1760s and 1770s 
Um, and they said they um, were a group of poets and artists and writers, uh, and they they wanted they said what we need to do is shift the world to an understanding where the religion is uh, is an individual and antinomian, right? That that the law is a secular thing that's not for Christians. It's and the um, and it started out um, with the the group was you know um, uh, ex Baptist Unitarians um, and atheists and they would get together. Um, I should have told you I was trouble right there. <laughs> Unitarians. <laughs> the Unitarians have been really destructive. In the Weinhart Inn in uh, Lewis is where they met. Is it? Is it? Okay. Yeah. But Which it, is still there. And you can really? go and see the plaque with Thomas Paine's picture Yeah, Thomas Paine, William Blake, yeah. um, all these guys. William Blake ended up leaving the group because... Benjamin too... Rush. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they... I don't um, know how you guys talk about them like they're old friends. You remember Benjamin? Yeah, I remember Benjamin. Well, oh, yeah. But, <laughs> but Thomas Paine is the one who brought it to America, right? Um, so And the, embedded it in his famous uh, little booklet that many say sparked the, the, uh, the war for independence. Right, right. So heard you well, there was two that. aspects to the war for independence because there was two cosmologies within America. Um, one saw the war for independence as a restorative war, right? We, we need um, the rights of an Englishman protected. We have these rights and, we, and the king is not protecting us. But then you have other people that say, we need to throw off the old, which is why the Constitution is a document, some of which goes back in common law and some of which is made up. And the, the Declaration time. of Independence, you know, what, one of the pivotal people in the whole struggle between these two cosmologies is Thomas Jefferson, who tried to straddle both traditions. Right. And throughout his entire life, he's tugged back and forth between the two traditions. So you have you know, Lockean phrases in the Declaration of Independence, like the pursuit of happiness, uh, which uh, many of the founding fathers were arguing, no, you've got you've to make that much more objective because the pursuit of happiness is seemingly so subjective. Uh, and uh, Thomas Jefferson said, no, it's not subjective. Look at what, uh, what Locke says in the Essay of Human Knowledge he makes it objectified by virtue, which is rooted in the gospel, uh, except that no one understood it that <laughs> right, way, right. and it becomes totally subjective. Yeah. So, go ahead. Um, would you all say that um, metaphor, if you go, there's like a further upstream to metaphor. So, in other words, metaphors only make sense if there's a story through which these metaphors exist. And he who tells the bigger story has the capacity to tell more metaphors. And he who um, has the best story, right, um, can tell the most potent metaphors. And I think in our world today, in a secular society, metaphors have been atomized. And so Christians who have also been atomized, as part of we need to repent of that, it seems like it's always a tit for tat. Right, so this metaphor all of a sudden crashes into the schools or into uh, the laws, and so Christian's best response is 
well, I'm going to give you an anti-metaphor. Here's right. my counter-metaphor. Right. Right. Yeah. And what we need to do, which is what y'all are saying, which is cosmology, in other words, uh, we, need to, we need to actually see how glorious and how big the story is. And once we really understand the story, and Pastor George said we need to be biblical again, we just need to be biblical again, I think Christians will be more capable of telling more metaphors, but they're going to be powerfully integrated <coughs> Therefore you can't do that. Too. You can't do that. You can't answer your own question. <laughs> what, what are but you doing? But you know the, the thing is, part of part of the part of the confusion of modernity is that while Nietzsche uh, and Gramsci would agree with everything that you said, and that they were both attempting to resurrect old stories to tell a more powerful story than the story of Christian cosmology. The truth is, Marx, Darwin, Freud, they didn't have a story. In fact, the whole point of, mm. of all three of those guys was there really is no story. Mm. Instead, what we've got to understand are impulses and chaos and take advantage of the impulse and the, and the chaos. So when, when you look at the marriage of Marxism, Freudianism, uh, and Darwinism, you, you have to realize this is a no-story story. Okay, um, we're gonna, I'm going to ask this question. We're going to take a break after we get done with this. But, and we'll bring, I know Dave is back there waiting to jump in. You haven't said anything. In this, so. Well, I, I wanted to say Jefferson won. Bobby McFerrin, 1988, don't worry, be happy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Don't weary, be holy. That's the story. <laughs> Part of the problem that, so I, I do a daily show, cross-politic, always looking into politics and paying attention to how the left is operating, the right's operating, the gooey middle. I've heard of that show. Yeah. I've heard of that show. Yeah, we say crazy things on there. Uh, but... Part of the thing that bothers me, the more I get into the game, is that there's only... It's Machiavellian, right? It's really Machiavellian. Right. Everybody is really grasped for power. And it's not like, oh, this is the left, they do it. No, the right and then the conservative Christians, you can find good brothers and sisters who really love the Lord, who know their Bibles. Pick the Reformed, highest up the chain you can go. I would say it's Presbyterian. <laughs> but pick them. They are still operating with a, a modern cosmology. And then when you talk like this to people, they look at you with like you have seven eyes. Right. And they're like, I'm only, th this is the sin, this is the crime, and I'm trying to stop it. And, you're, and you keep arguing with them like, yes, but you're doing it the wrong way, right? And this is kind of the conversation with Christian nationalism, too, that we're having. Nobody likes transgender story hours and transgender kids going into getting surgery on yeah. them. Nobody wants that stuff. Nobody wants it. Um, and yet... When you say it's a cosmological argument, they're like, great, you're going to take 30 years to change something that we need to fix tomorrow because there's a kid who's going to get his stuff lopped off while you're trying to change yeah. somebody's cosmology. Don't work that way. Right. All right? So the world dies while you're trying to change cosmology. So that and, and the smart guys, the, the, the smart guys, I'm talking about, the, so the dumb guys are winning, right? Right, yeah. right. And the smart guys will not fight. Right. And that's a different kind of compromise of God's truth. They have the right arguments, and they won't go way in 
and call the names and they won't do the fight, but there's one guy. Because it's risky. Right. It's risky yeah. and it requires courage. So, but that's still a, that's the cosmo, still a cosmological argument there too. But here's my question. How do you, how do you know and what are the signs that you're operating with a, moderni- a, a modernistic cosmology? Because and I'm not talking about the people on the other side. We know what they're doing. But Christians, how do you get them to see that they're operating with the same worldview as the pagans? As the pulpits go, so goes Christendom. Amen. So it's, um, it, it's really a problem of the, the, the calling of pastors to do the hard work, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, all of the discipling, it, it really requires that consistent application of the Word of God. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Uh, the Word of God is the weapon that we bring. Um, and if we're not wielding it well in the battles that are in our face, then we've capitulated to the enemy. Yeah, we live in a world created by the Word of God, and it will only be recreated by the Word of God. Right. So, could it, be, could it be said that it's really simple, but it's not easy? Um, yeah, not because, because one of the things that we do is we, we, we turn the Word of God into a series of morals, uh, and thus we preach moralism yeah. uh, rather than... Uh, the, the, the full weight of the whole cosmology, uh, the Trinitarian nature, the covenantal nature of all things, and the restoration of all things. Can I just use the Trinity for a second? For instance, we'll use the Trinity instead to argue whether or not you're orthodox, but have no application for it beyond that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, this, this is something that uh, theologians have backed away from largely in, in our day. Um, Trinitarian uh, implications are abound for parenting, for uh, for personal relationships, for businesses, uh, the the responsibility, the overlapping jurisdictions, the structure of Mm. of uh, relationships. All of that is Trinitarian, Uh, and we just we're, we're not making we're not connecting those dots. Jason, you were going to say something? Well, we, no. can, go can I pull a few of those things together that are just hitting with Absolutely, me? yeah. Is that many Christians who have lived in this Genesis 3 world that, that Dr. Grant's talking about, I guess I'm being hit. I've heard that a lot. I'm, I'm pretty involved in this. Um, but what I'm realizing is it's in me. Yes. Yeah. Right. Come on now. And and the fact that that when we live in this Genesis three world, we do what what this gentleman was talking about. We we buy into what you were saying. We buy into living in this place where we're we're making you know we're we're picking these things off. The problem I think is many believers they're very comfortable with this idea of I need personal salvation. But when we're confronted with 
the reality of Genesis 1 and 2, that's like a whole new world. It's like, wait a minute, you're telling me that there is this big story that I'm, it's, it's like you need, you need another salvation. <laughs> the fact that you're in the second blessing, yeah, brother. Yeah. Second blessing. I mean, oh and, and we're very. We, that's where we suddenly get very uncomfortable. And it's like, well, yeah. I'm comfortable deciding that I need personal salvation, but you go live your life the way you your truth. You know, yeah. somebody said, "My Jesus." Or you know, you go live your truth. I'm going to live my truth. We've bought into that part as well, and so we've got to we've got to stop and go. Wait a minute, who have I really bought into? Who is Jesus that I've really bought into? And who is this Trinity? Who is God in this this master story? And if we can flip the switch. For so many believers that are living this way and they need, we need what you're talking about, Dr. Grant. If we flip that switch, then at least we've got millions of people that are going, this is a big story and I'm this little part of it. And now we need to grab a hold of all these things we're talking the, we need we need ourselves to buy into the real metaphor. Amen. Yeah. We, Amen. Here, here's a good example of that. We, um, uh, my family was a church planting down in the Bay Area, San Francisco. I don't know what the Bay Area on this side of the country is, but on the West Coast, the Bay Area, San Francisco. We're just south of San Francisco, and um, I was one of the pastors of the Asian American Christian Fellowship at the University of California, Santa Cruz. It obviously makes sense that I would be pastoring at the Asian American Christian Fellowship. That's how you identify, yeah. bro. <laughs> but, um, but, the, but that gave my church a lot of opportunity to minister and, and evangelize, really, at the, um, to the children of the first generation, um, mostly Chinese immigrants, that were Buddhists. There were Buddhist temples all up and down the coast, um, but they're but my wife makes really great brownies. And so they would come visit for my wife's brownies. And, and we, we would spend months trying to explain the gospel to these young students that were raised in Buddhist households. And they, they would take Bibles, and then they would say, it doesn't make any sense. I don't understand. And then my wife had a, this amazing idea of, well, we give our kids children's Bibles first. What if we gave them children's Bibles? And so the Lions children's Bible is what we used with our kids. And so we bought literally every used copy because it was out of print, every used copy on Amazon, about 30 copies. And the next, um, the next time people came over, they were all gone. And within six weeks, we were baptizing people because they didn't have the overarching story. And the Lions children's Bible is a novelization of the covenant history of God's people starting with the creation through Revelation. Right? And it's just, here's the, here's the whole story. Here's the covenant. Here's the story of the covenant. And then once they had that, they would go read their Bible and be able to make sense of it. Most Christians don't have that. Mm. right? That understanding of the history of the covenant people of God. 
um, even in the scriptures, let alone up to the present, right? Um, I, the, uh, what started me on the entire cosmological journey was uh, the talk you gave on St. Brendan. Huh. Do you remember that well, one? I, yeah. 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 Um, and actually, it was in the Q&A afterwards yeah. um, where somebody said, but is it true? And you said, does it matter? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh. And you said, it, it's, it's, this is part of the story of our people. This is a story that gives us who we are. It's a poem. You have to come to it as a poem and ask the question, how does, how does, what does this tell us? Is it, the, the right question isn't, did he really go through a, a castle of, a blue castle on the sea, or all of that? Um, the right question is, how does this tell us who God is and who we are? Mm-mm. Um, and Mm-mm. started me in on studying medieval poetry, so um, which made me realize how messed up we all are. Um, so, but anyway, the a children's Bible <laughs> yeah. uh, made all of the difference um, because it held the whole story together for these young students, um, and uh, we need that sort of understanding. Last question, then break. Yeah. So, I had a, just a preference, preface this, uh, are the sun, moon, and stars, are they part of the heavenly host? Are, mm-hmm. are they part? Are they? I think they are the heavenly host. Okay, they are yeah, the heavenly that's heavenly. my, okay. I mean, my take is that when he says the heavenly host, he's talking about the sun, the moon, and the stars, and sometimes they come down and sing and do different things on the earth, and mm, you did not leap that out. Which is what, the, the, which is what C.S. Lewis is working with in the Narnia series. Yeah. He's he's really taking uh, the planetary spheres, and he's he's recasting each of the planetary spheres into the different stories. I don't know if it was one of you guys, but I was listening to something recently where they were explaining how, um, explaining uh, how and. Gospels, the uh, heavenly host came down and sang, and they're like, "Oh, it's the stars." I'm like, "Wait!" And then I read it, and like, "Oh, yeah, it's it's the stars." Yeah. Um, that still feels weird, doesn't yeah. it? But, like, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's a trip. Um, and my my main question is, if we're to think of the heavenly host as sun, moon, and stars, and as as old as the 1600s, we were we were putting in our poetry and psalms, um, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise uh, God, ye heavenly host, mm-hmm. which I think gets twisted a little bit because people miss here don't read the, the thing like praise uh, praise Him who is a, who is above instead of you're actually telling the heavenly host to praise God. Mm-hmm. You're, you are taking the place of judge over creation um, that we've been given because we're in the new creation. Uh, the main question is, like, how do we flex our muscles <laughs> as judge? Because um, well, we've let that atrophy over the last 400 years. Mm-hmm. True. My, I would... This, and we'll find out if we all agree on this one. I don't know. Um, we don't. Go ahead. Probably not. Um, my understanding is that we're being prepared to judge right now. So what we're flexing, we, um, so we've been given small spheres 
to rule well, small jurisdictions. So we take the jurisdiction of our personal, of our personhood, and we look to be sanctified, to be more like Christ in our personhood. We take the jurisdiction within our family, and we look to be, uh, to see our family sanctified, to be a better reflection of the triune life of God. And we're uh, not to despise the day of small beginnings. That right. We're, we're in the day of small beginnings uh, in each of our spheres of responsibility, and God is preparing us for the great and glorious, uh, as, uh, as Paul Bilheimer called it, uh, we're destined for the throne. Right. And uh, so all of life, all of prayer, all of spiritual battle is, is really boot camp. And, and so what right now, one of the things that we are doing is calling the world to worship, which the stars did starting on day four. The stars, they were in charge of the festival seasons of calling God's people to worship. We see that the angels um, also, in the stars, and the angels are not separable, but there are some angels that are not stars. Also, we see them in Isaiah 6 and in different places calling God's people to worship. The beginning of the book of Revelation, the, the, um, the angels are running worship. But by the end, mankind is. So, our, so every week when we sing the doxology... We, the, the third phrase is um, calling the sun, the moon, and the stars to join us in church because we have shifted as to, um, to a, seat in, a, a seat, spiritually speaking, we sit in the heavenly places and do what the stars did in the old covenant. Um, and that, but that's part of our training towards eventually becoming a judge. So leading in worship... Um, mm. And coming to worship and being uh, God's people gathered in worship is training us into the role that we will take when someday we judge the angels. Um, but, but we're still in that training period. And so church, you, you worship, um, and then the, the particular spheres, the particular jurisdictions that God puts you in. Um, so if you're an elder in a church or a deacon in a church, you know, that's a sphere that you work to see that corporate body reflecting the triune life of God more and more. If you're in a uh, civic, civic sphere, um, that, and we all are we, in some sort of civic sphere once we turn 18 because, of the, because we're in a semi-democratic republic. Um, well, and I would even say civic sphere, period, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so... <laughs> so we have, yeah, depending on what county you vote in, I guess. <laughs> no, never mind. Leave that one alone. All right, so when we... Well, one of the things that, uh, that we know about the doxology is that Thomas Ken, who wrote our current version of it, uh, learned it from his uh, adoptive father, Isaac Walton, while they were fly fishing I did not. Uh, outside of London. And uh, when, when Thomas Ken put it together as, as the chorus to Evensong and um, Matins for uh, the school that he taught in, uh, he set it to the tune of the Old Hundredth yeah. from the Genevan Psalter. Uh, and in his notes, in the original, he says, uh, all creation sings in a cosmic dance. Mm. So it's a call to festival. 
It's a call for all of creation to sing and to dance in this great cosmic dance. That's what the doxology is. Would he have been familiar with Maximus the Confessor? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. And he, that same Walton that wrote The Dun? Uh, Isaac Walton, the guy who wrote the, the biographies of, of people like Richard Baxter, he wrote The Complete Angler. Yeah, uh, which is a classic book on fly fishing, but it's not about fly fishing. No. <laughs> it's about the, the 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 universe and everything. And uh, so, I did not know that. So, so where yeah. so he where did he learn the doxology? Where did Walton learn it? Well, he, he uh, they, they were they were singing while fly fishing. Okay. And uh, so Walton obviously knew the Genevan jigs. Yeah. Uh, and so he took Psalm one hundred and he started making up words along with. Uh, you know, Psalm 100. Yeah. And, and so Thomas Ken learned that as a child. So every time we sing the doxology, this is a beautiful Trinitarian notion here, covenantal notion. We're actually singing the story of a father and a son fly fishing, reflecting on the whole cosmic dance that now is part of our story. We all know it by heart, and therefore, we are wed in this cosmic dance across the ages, going back to Geneva, forward to London, and Isaac Walton, and uh, there's a wonderful plaque in uh, St. James Piccadilly, uh, Christopher Wren's magnificent parish church right down from Piccadilly Circus uh, that, ha- that uh, is a just a kind of a tribute to Isaac Walton and his love for his orphaned, uh, uh, his wife's orphaned brother who became his adoptive son, Thomas Ken, who gave us the doxology. When the, the old 100th was, this was about 10 years ago, but it was supposedly the most well-known tune in the world. Yeah. So that you, there wasn't a, a country in the world where you couldn't, where it wasn't being. Sung. Yeah, it's supposedly more uh, familiar across the world than Amazing Grace. Mm-hmm. All right. So it's also considered so snooty in high church, informal, and really it's just a guy being honest with his son from a long time. Exactly. Yes. Informing level. Yeah, they're just high church. They're out there. That's hilarious. Out there in a river, fly fishing. <laughs> yeah, right. Singing. If you want to know how to affect the world as a Christian and restore it and go back to it. Go back and just be honest with your son before your God. Come on, fly fish. So are we taking a break right now? You're going to let me? (laughs) (laughs) After we sing the duck song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures Cosmological Resistance with David Fowler next. I'll get some coffee.